0: Hello basketball fans and welcome to the Dave and Dia podcast starting at center from Portland the wily veteran Dave Decker And at guard from Los Angeles, the patron saint of rainbows and unicorns, your podcast MVP, Dia Miller. Hello and welcome once again to Dave and Dia at Blazer's Edge. We are happy to have you here on this steamy and hot August week. And speaking of steamy and hot August, uh, Dia is in Las Vegas this week. And so it's not actually the Dave and Dia show. We have a pinch hitter. It's actually going to be Dave and Henry, which is... Far more of a 1960s sitcom-sounding thing, uh, but is hopefully an entertaining podcast because we have Henry Abbott of True Hoop here with us today, and it is an honor and privilege. Henry, hello. How you doing?
1: I'm great, Dave. So I'm honored to be here. Good to be talking. I feel like this is about... Well, um, when did we first meet? 150 years ago, roughly? <laughs> is that... Where we
0: are? <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. <laughs> in uh, in NBA <laughs> writing terms. I mean, you were the first. We'll get there. Uh, I came a little bit after you in your wake, but uh, True Hoop kind of plowed the uh, field to uh, open it up for people who were. Media uh, and media adjacent to kind of get more access and talk about things in a different way, a little more independent, a little more entertaining perhaps than the normal beat writing. And there was a time, I'm sure it's still true, but I remember in those early days when you were the voice and we were all glued to everything that you said because it was so different and so... uh, you know, insidery views. So let, let us know, how did True Hoop start? Where did you start out? You have some Portland connections, right? I grew up
1: in Portland. Yeah, I I, well, I was born in England, and then when I was a little baby, we moved to Newburgh, Oregon, and then Portland, and I graduated from Oregon Episcopal School in 1990, and, um, and then I went to NYU, and I've lived not in Portland since then, but I see myself as an Oregonian still, even though I actually haven't been there quite a long time, um, and I'm a Blazers fan. Um, which is probably how you and I got to know each other early in the process. Um, then I worked in actual journalism. I, you know, I worked at CBS News and um, for a bunch of freelancing for magazines and other things. And then um, actually, it was an Oregon Episcopal School connection that got me into basketball, which was uh, Anna Gabby, who, I went to, who I also went to OES, uh, was the managing editor of Slam Magazine. And we knew each other in high school a little bit, but not particularly. She was older than me. And um, I noticed her name in the masthead of SLAM. And I was a journalist and a huge basketball fan. And we went to a little OES alumni thing in New York City, which was like six or seven people. And I was like, wait, are you the managing editor of SLAM? And she was so excited to be that someone from OES knew this about her. And, um, and then and I told her I love basketball and was a journalist or whatever. And then just a few weeks later, I, this is really what happened was, do you remember the controversy when Inside Stuff magazine airbrushed Alan Iverson's tattoos off his body on the cover of the magazine? So that resulted in the NBA needing to kind of save face and look like they were more in touch with players. And so they hired away the editorial directors of Slam to run Inside Stuff and Hoop magazines. In that process, Anna called me in a bit of a panic and said, we just learned in a meeting from the lawyers that we can't use any freelancers from Slam. I know that you don't do sports journalism. I know that you're a real journalist, but could you please just visit sports journalism to help us meet these deadlines? And my first assignment was to go talk to Jason Williams, power forward of the Nets, who was like the most entertaining interview of all time. And I was secretly, I'm like, first of all, A, Anna, you're completely incorrect. I don't see this as slumming. I would love to work in sports. I just didn't think that people got to do that. It seems like too fun. Um, And secondly, I would love to just do that all the time. And within a few months, I was like, writing so many stories for Inside Stuff and Slam that we had literally, there's an episode of it out there with a fake name. I wrote like there are four feature stories in that in the issue and I wrote three of them. And for one of them, like, we just have to use a fake name because it looks bad if the same writer writes three of the four stories. <laughs> so so that's how I got into Portugalism. And I started True Hoop because uh, magazines are just so slow. Um, you know, you turn in a story and it comes out eight weeks is like the fastest. And I just knew a whole bunch of stuff that, was only of use for a day or a week. And I didn't need somewhere to park it. And then uh, a buddy of mine, Alex, was like, you need to start a blog. And I thought that was just a stupid idea because it sounded kind of dorky. But he eventually convinced me to do it. And um, it it was wild, Dave. It was like it quickly, like all sorts of things happened. and, And it obviously seemed like a better thing to do than everything else I was doing. So I kind of convinced my friends and family. This was, this was the right direction, which was a pretty bold thing to do, but but worked out.
0: Yeah, because when you started it, I mean, this did not exist, right? I mean, I, I, from what I remember, media outlets, traditional media outlets were just starting to get into the online field, but people were basically porting their normal stories and reproducing them online without any changes without any interaction, without any uh, sense of the advantage of being able to deliver content that interactively and that quickly, they're just saying we're going to be newspaper writers and it's going to be electronic. And you were one of the first, weren't you, to just kind of like start putting out content very quickly, start dressing it up a little bit. Uh, I remember you being very accessible too, which a lot of uh, media people just weren't.
1: Yeah, it was a different... Um, I mean, I, I had a blog role on the side of True Hoop and my aspiration was to have every basketball blog there. Um, and at the beginning, it was 12. Um, I know uh, like J.E. Skeets was in there, Kelly Dwyer. Um, I could probably think up who the rest of them were if we had way more time. But um, actually, it's all in the Wayback Machine. You can go see it. But, you know, it was literally, I think, there, as far as I could tell, and I worked pretty hard to find out, there were 12 basketball blogs in the world. And within a year there were 200 and it was impossible to keep them all there um but yeah I, my thought was that I, I i sort of hated ap style i mean i went to journalism school and studied journalism but the style of telling the story that way like even the people who wrote those ap style stories who were my friends i was like when they would just tell it to my face they would say it like a normal person talks <laughs> right like they would just say oh my god you wouldn't believe what happened like this guy's such a jerk blah, blah blah and i was like Why are you, you know that's the best way to tell this story, right? Why are you telling it in this very stilted way, which I think honestly is just designed? The reason that we have AP Style, I'm pretty convinced, is because it keeps the publisher from getting sued. It's a way that you can have a million employees, right? Churning out content in a way that is of low legal risk. But it's not good for the audience. It's not good for the journalist. It's good for the publisher, right? So I was like, let's just make it so it's good for the audience. Let's try to just talk plain spokenly. And um, anyway, that that was the idea. And I wanted to, you know, I, I believe in capital J journalism. I wanted to, like, call people and research stuff and tell the truth. Um, and But I also wanted to just, you know, give it the feeling of telling it like it is and not just the, the veneer of that.
0: Right. And now, of course, that you would have a hard time finding it otherwise, that everybody yeah. morphed over, right?
1: Uh, so it's, it's a very confusing media time right now. Yeah, there's not a lot of traffic for ap style stories that's for sure but um we have other kinds of horse crap (laughs) you know like there's a like the the instagram version of journalism is not particularly enlightened either right um it's very well uh, you know i think that the hannah Arendt has this quote the like the the enemy of truth is power right and uh, I think that is proving true on the internet <laughs> you know it's you know whether it's the pandemic or climate change like someone's like hey, hey you know this looks a little iffy you know powerful voices are like we don't want to hear that <laughs> right like just keep it quiet and uh, that gets a, that wins a lot of friends which is a little scary but um but yeah I do think we've broken the AP like lock hold on sports info which is I think a good thing
0: yeah I mean it's it's not bad. There's, uh, to me, there's always been a sense of baby with the bathwater. Uh, w- w- something that happened relatively quickly after individual journalists, either websites or reports for a greater website became popular, was very quickly those journalists became the experts. Now all of a sudden, you're not just writing, you're on radio interviews uh, locally and nationally. You're on TV, you're getting other gigs. And all of a sudden, uh, a person who was expert in writing and reporting in a certain style is now an expert on the thing that they were reporting on. And that was an interesting metamorphosis for me because at that point, that's for me when a lot of the, uh, what would one say, reserve uh, objectivity uh, kind of went out the window, because it's it's relatively difficult to go on TV and say, this is the way things are, and then to sit down in front of a keyboard and write, no, that's not actually the way things are, because here's this evidence.
1: Well, there's I'd always kind of think about the players, coaches, and, you know, they I was not long in this game when there was a meeting of the uh, PBWA, uh, the the Press Association, which was on the theme of you know why the players hate us when we hate the players. <laughs> I was like, well, that doesn't seem very healthy, <laughs> right? And, and if you go and look, you know, by and large, if you get a player being honest, they're like, you guys just write whatever you want to write. It has nothing to do with reality. Right? Like somebody's got some agenda and leaked something to you and you know and just they they take the position by and large of either A, it's just the this crazy game of journalism that's rooted in nothing to do with reality, or B they're going to take it over and just tell their version. Like, neither of those is the truth, right? Like, like it, both of those are colored by agendas, right? And I feel like it's hard work and not always popular work to sort of delve into how things really are. And, uh, you know, like, if, if you, so for instance, let's say, a, a, I'm trying to think of a real example. Like, if an agent and a team have agreed to a deal before the, it can legally be agreed to nobody wants that out there everybody powerful wants that story just not to be out there but it's real right so it's a favor to fans to report it but no power broker wants that out there and so what's the best what does the best journalist do in that scenario right like I, I to me the big problem i see in media is by and large in hollywood style a lot of sports journalists do well by just screwing the fans and favoring the power brokers and I just hate that. It just seems like totally we don't even need journalists. That's that's PR. If that's what you're going to do, but that's how you that's how you get favors with powerful people in the NBA for sure.
0: Yeah, in essence, the power has shifted right from the publisher to the player or coach or whoever the source is, right? And I, you know, that that always did have some truth to it, but. It's really we're in an era where a person can tell their own story and a person can choose who they talk to. You do not have to talk to the person who puts the microphone in front of you in your locker room. You are one text away from a national voice who will say whatever you want or a national outlet who will simply reprint whatever you say. Right. So that that's changed the field uh, a lot. I think I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's
1: pretty stupid. I mean, it's not, there's not a lot of value in the content that results from that, right? Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I was involved in an episode as an editor at ESPN where basically an agency, you know, the, the magazine assigned a writer to write a feature about a player. That player's agency, which also represents a number of sports media personalities, so they wanted a different writer on the story. Magazine head said, no, we picked a writer already. Like, that's that. And, um, and he's in Net City uh, and has already talked to your player a little bit and this dude to have dinner tomorrow. Long story short, within, within 24 hours, the team was asking our journalist to leave the practice facility. Like, he's basically thrown out. Everyone's apologetic, but like... And then, um, you know, we, we did publish a story by our chosen writer, but there's a little less than that for the magazine. And by and large, you know, there have been a ton of stories a, you know, featuring a player by a journalist who has the same agency happens all the time in the NBA. Now And like, these are things. This means six months before that comes out, there's a meeting at the agency where they're trying to picking what's going to be in public. Uh, here's another one. Actually, this one's amazing to me. I was in a meeting where they were like, guys, great news. The Rockets are going to give us like all access to write a story about what great friends Dwight Howard and uh, James Harden are. And the, like, I was the only person in the room. who was like, "You guys, they're not friends. <laughs> like, 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 they're definitely not friends. Like, we know this. It benefits the Rockets to have that on the cover of ESPN the magazine. But like, we cannot do that story. You know, like, what? Like, like, anyway. But that kind of stuff. It, it's, it's all over. It, it's, it's everywhere. It's not well. It's not in every single place. But it's, it's what we're up against. It's what we're up against, Dave. That's what we're fighting. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it's ubiquitous now. Though I, I think one of the major questions when talking about the NBA players or whatever it is, do you want a view of what's going on, or do you want the brand or to be sold to? And I used to think that, well, the truth is the standard, and I, I still do, but. I've also come to a piece with, it's an entertainment league. Uh, This is for fun, and this is so people can gather around something that they love and want to believe in. And uh, a large portion of fans simply want to be sold to. They want the, it's almost like wrestling. Like, okay, I kind of know this might not be entirely real, but for this period of time, I'm going to shut off that knowledge and I'm going to buy in. And by the way, if you tap me on the shoulder and say, here's the actual truth, uh, I'm not going to be very pleased with that because it's not what I want.
1: You know, Bob Woodsett was the Blazers GM and lived in Seattle the whole time. And if you're a Blazers fan, do you want to know that or not? Right? Like... Do you want to know that the GM doesn't really like Portland and has a bunch of duties that aren't the trailblazers? Like they pretty much suppressed that. It pretty much wasn't public. Most blazers. I I don't know if you're a better blazer journalist, if you go along with the team's wish to keep that secret or not, it's a little like how they covered Babe Ruth and he was like out carousing every night and everyone just said he was a great guy. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, you tell me, Like, is it, is that just making it entertainment or, you know, is it, is it ruining the thing? If you tell that the true way, um, it kind of depends, right? It depends what happens. But, um, you know, or, or similarly, I mean, I don't think anyone will be surprised to hear like Neil O'Shea, like openly complained about the city of Portland to national journalists all the time. <laughs> all the time. And um, and and basically wouldn't talk to local journalists by and large. Like he, you know, he would talk to national journalists. Why is that? It's like, because they could help him get a job somewhere else. You know, that that, that was pretty, pretty clear. That's what was going on. Um, even now, there's this like the whole NBA is riveted by this new old O'Shea, Jody Allen lawsuit. My point being, there's a lot of unpleasant stuff that happens at every local team. And if you're the person who's the face of that in the media world, the fans are pretty much like, how dare you, you idiot, you better shut up. Right? It's like, you guys, you're kind of putting us in a bind here because our only other choice is to basically do exactly what Jody Allen wants or Paul Allen wanted in the case of the Bob Woods story, right? Our only other choice is to just say, like, happy, happy, fun, fun, joy, joy, everybody loves the Blazers, everything's perfect in Portland. And that's not a good way for, like, the media to function in, like, Thomas Jefferson's view of the media, <laughs> where, like, is holding power of people's feet to the fire, right? Um, frankly, if Jody Allen herself is kind of creepy, um, do you write that or not, right? And most beat writers just don't, right? I, I, the, and I did a pretty exhaustive analysis of this, when I was a, at editor ESPN and like, bad news, big traffic, national stories, almost never initiate with local journalists. Almost never. The vast majority of journalists are local, but they just don't do that. And I can tell you that personally, when those stories come out, you know, like for instance, the, the Mavericks, um, terrible workplace, right? When that comes out, you know what local journalists say is, everybody knew that.
0: It's like, you guys, everybody knew that,
1: then why didn't you do your job?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's problematic atmosphere a little bit, but I understand, I mean, you can read the back and forth. Once you, there's, you got to read in the subtext and the undercurrent a little bit, and you can tell when a certain kind of thing is being written from a certain point of view in a certain person, you're going like, oh, okay, this is this thing. It's taken us a while to get there, but I think that I think that most people are sanguine that the the story isn't the whole story often that said what drives me up the wall is when people see the story from the team or the player and they speak and then those people go oh no that's here's the final truth this is it it's done well no i mean that's inherently their brand That's what you're getting. Now, it may also be true, and it certainly has elements of truth. I think few people are up there just telling bald-faced lies all the time. But what you're hearing from inside teams and from players is often an angle or slice of the truth. It's certainly not the definitive thing. Uh, If it were, then we could all go home and just read off of Facebook uh, what's going on with sports entirely.
1: Yeah, I know. I couldn't agree more... You know, there and you know, you're really good. I, you know, I love reading your work, interpreting what is public. And I feel like you're very thoughtful about it. And, you know, you can learn a ton if you're reading as carefully as you are, right? From what's public. I think uh, the media really has two powers. And we mostly focus on one of them. One of the powers is like, what's the angle, right? Like, which side are we taking? You know, who's lying, right? That's important. But I think maybe the other thing that's usually important is what are the topics we discuss at all? I think there are the agendas come up in a more pernicious way. So, for instance, really nobody in sports wants to talk about doping. Like, it's just not a winner. It it costs money to every participant in the chain, and so guess what? Nobody does. Like, day after day, team after team, weird signal after weird signal. Like, every beat writer in the NBA every day just doesn't talk about it. But you know who does talk about it? Players. They're very worried about it right it's not a super safe environment to be a clean player anymore and the league doesn't want to talk about it they you know they they sort of overtly punished me for bringing it up um and you know that's not it's not a great environment for truth telling when if you stick your neck out to say tell the truth when it's unpopular like it everyone agrees that that's a bad thing <laughs> like that's a little tough right
0: yeah, I, I remember writing about doping a little bit. And, uh, you know, I'm farther away than you are from the game, so I'm less expert. So I try to I try to moderate my takes accordingly. That said, I remember writing about doping once. I think it was five, six years ago. And then, you know, you think everybody says, well, no one's listening to your little website. No one really reads it. I, that day, you know, uh, communication from the NBA, like... <laughs> Hey, yeah. what are you doing? And da 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 And it's like, oh, well... I guess somebody's reading this. Anyway. <laughs> I'm sure I know who sent that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, there are chains. Oh, I used to be able to, like, I could tell as I was writing who I was going to hear from. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's like, it's pretty funny. It's like, that's how I knew that. That's part of the reason I knew that the Blazers, for instance, needed a regime change. It's just like, I don't even have to ask anymore. It's just like pressing a button and getting yeah. the same response. And it's like, something's got to change it. Let's talk about the NBA a little bit uh, away from media. What do you think are the biggest differences now from when you started or your early years to the NBA now? how how How's the league evolved? Well, maybe it's my
1: perception that's evolved. I'm like you know, older, um, less excited just to be here and more kind of like, hey, how does this thing work, right? less um you know, I, I went to my first finals, I think in two thousand. I'm pretty sure that was Pacers Lakers. And you don't, know, I'm a don't journalist. remind
0: us, Blazer fans, about who was. Yeah,
1: there. that was a tricky year, tricky, <laughs> tricky year. Yep. um <laughs>
0: <Fourth> <laughs> sorry collapse. Yes, in here.
1: Oh, that. it's just that hurts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so cool. I do remember, you know, I as a kid, I would walk in Memorial Coliseum, and that crowd, and I would get this sort of like breathless feeling of like this majestic palace, right? Like you're walking into a holy space almost. Um, and then you become a journalist and like, yeah, you know, you're forever waiting outside locker rooms and, you know, annoyed that someone said they would meet you when they won't or whatever. And it just, it feels like work. But the finals, this is my first finals. I walked into the finals. I remember thinking like, wow, you know, this is, this is a special thing to get to be here. And I sat alone in the uppermost part of the stands, just looked at the state empty stadium for a while. I think it was like Travis Best was shooting or something. But I was just like, you know, this is cool. That I get to be here. And um, so at that time, the NBA just felt like something I was curious about, right? Let me just like learn how it works. At some point, you know, Dave Stern retired, Adam Silver took over, lots of other changes. But now I'm much more familiar with it and less curious, right? Now I'm more like, this, you guys, we have not done our homework here as journalists. Like we are not keeping around the ball. And like, maybe it's always been this way, but certainly now it feels to me like, frankly, the NBA is... In the eyes of the billionaires who run things it's largely useful as money laundering for terrible things and it's weird it's weird to see it that way and to look how beholden you know like you know, adam silver just won't criticize powerful people he's he was great friends with jared kushner and went through the whole trump administration without saying seeing a single flaw worth noting in public um it's weird <laughs> like what's going on with that and then you can see there are a lot of business ties and you know, Josh Harris is in meetings at the White House, and on and on. Um, you know, anyway, I could go on forever about this or with this whole series on Hoop about the NBA ties to Jeffrey Epstein um, and Apollo Global. Um, it's kind of wild, but uh, yeah. So that so it feels to me like I see more now, and it feels. You know, Adam Silver basically doesn't take hard questions from journalists ever. He basically is, you know, David Stern wanted to fight with us <laughs> right like he loved it actually he, he gave a press conference and um the nba draft lottery and i was standing next to chad ford and chad asked him a really tough question and then a tough follow-up and as soon as and i was like oh you know maybe chad's gonna get murdered was my first thought and as soon as uh, david stern came over and they just yucking it up and he's clapping chad on the arm and chad's like here's the secret about david stern like He's bored, and he just loves to fight with smart people. That's what he does for a living. And so I was like, screw it, I'll do that. And so I just would, David Stern and I got along great. He wanted to kill me a bunch of times, but you know he was always available to argue with. <laughs> and um, that was a real useful thing. I think he, I was aware in real time of him covering things up like the Donaghy scandal. I asked him like really hard questions about that. And he was just like, gave lawyerly, total horse crap answers, but I admired the artistry of it, Right. In the case of Adam Silver, like, you don't get to ask that question. You know, like, all of these things that come and go now, it's like, we'll never know. If you're the kind of guy asked that question, you're not going you to get to ask another question. And he only holds one or two press conferences a year where there even are questions hollered at him. Um, and he gives very safe interviews. Um, and if you're someone who writes about doping or whatever, like, you're not going to talk to him. Like, it's just not going to happen. Um, so th- that's what feels different to me. It just feels like, you know, there's kind of these tectonic plates beneath the surface of, like, LeBron and Clutch are pushing for this and Adam and the league are pushing for that and, you know, these players want this and blah, blah, blah. And, like, mostly you can get kind of whispers from that and you can get a sense of the agendas. But there's very little forthright, honest talk.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's If you read, like, David Halberstam and, you know, some of the old seminal ABA and NBA stuff and how these owners were invested in in making a league work so they could make money you know what i mean they were there there was kind of the sense of growing or planting now i I don't mean that they were altruistic or saints or in any sense of the word you know good but they were conscious that it was time to grow this league and that was how they were going to make their dollars almost now it feels like they're in a harvest right okay this is grown now it's time for everybody to reap the rewards. It's time for billionaire investments. It's time for you know high six-figure uh, player deals, uh, and, and I, I think you're seeing that uh, play out and, and benefit a lot of people. But with that sense of harvesting comes the question of, do you still know how to plant and grow? And by the way, is this sustainable? Are you planting behind you? Or is it just going to be like locusts that come through here? And all of a sudden, when something needs to change or a new cycle needs to start, it's not uh, happening.
1: I love how you just put that. Yeah, I'm going to just, if you don't mind, just use that (laughs) as is planting behind you. Um, You know, most of the value of the brand now is... Like there are, you know, five or six leading money losing streaming services, right? And one of them will hope to keep in business longer by having, by continuing to lose money, but with this logo on it, which might make them outlast one of the other ones that go out of business, right? So that, or... Um, the NBA and its various teams are incredible brands to put on real estate around stadiums. Right, this is a giant influx of money. The act with n- neither of those things are really in the business of injecting delight into the hearts of young people or the public at large. Right, or filling the stadium with just a city that's beloved of you know to a team. It's not really how the business works anymore. It's you know you need a certain number of luxury suites. You need Fortune five hundred companies in the vicinity. You know. Maybe you can make money from local broadcast, maybe you can't. Um, but it's not really about, wow, look at, you know, Maurice Lucas and Bill Walton and Herman Gilliam and how much the city is just swoons for them. Like, it's not really how it goes. It's not it, it, how the money goes. It's not how the interests of the people at the top go. Um, and I think that's very much how you end up with some pretty creepy background business around the NBA.
0: Well, and how much of the investment, as you say, is not in basketball? You know, it, right. it almost doesn't matter what happens with the basketball. The basketball is the, is the little shiny object of the laser pointer to keep the fan cat interested. But it has no yep. real significance. What's really happening is around it. I mean, you can see this in uh, the way owners make their money. I mean, year to year to year losses or gains. I mean, there's something to that, right? And you don't want those to spiral out of control. But it's the investment, right? It's Paul Allen buying this team in whatever it was '98 for uh, some, you know, hundred million dollars, and then, you, you know, Jody will be able to sell it for four billion a couple decades yeah. later. Okay. The questions in that is is that growing the product at all? Does that change the product at all? Or do you wanna actually status quo the product so nothing messes with your gains? But also, how much gain is left? If someone's buying a team for $4 billion right now or whatever the Knicks would sell for, how do you get your money? I, how do you how do you get your investment? You're not, you don't have a huge year-to-year profit. Is this thing really gonna go to $20 billion in another 20 years? I don't see how that happens. So, well,
1: and think about this, like they, I mean, I'm not an economist, but like the way supply and demand worked, they're letting private equity come into sports for the specific reason that they've run out of individuals with enough money. Do, like, right, this means there's a lack of demand, right? At this price, they're almost out of people. They're, 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 they, Steve Ballmer already got a team. There's almost nobody rich enough to buy the Knicks in the future. So they have to just open their minds as to who could possibly afford this. And the answer is these kind of pools of capital that come with just the most unbelievably complicated ties. Like these same private firms have defense deals with the United Arab Emirates and Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And like, it's just, it's a very complicated set of businessmen, right? These are some of these people who are around Trump, you know, getting in legal trouble right now, right? Um, It's a a tricky thing to do. So to your point, I, I, I don't see how, you know, they, there are these projections that the future valuations will be you know, 5x, 10x, 50x. I'm like, who who, who could possibly afford this? I don't see how it can go on forever. Um, and I, I think we should also acknowledge it's not always even about the actual return on the sports investment. So for instance, um, Stephen A. Cohen got in a lot of legal trouble. Um, there was insider trading in his firm, and it damaged his business life, right? He's very, very successful multi-investor, but he was seen as someone that the most blue chip of banks and such wouldn't do business with. But he bought the Mets because when you buy the Mets, you're in the newspaper every day as just like a wall street guy, not a wall street guy with a compromised record, just a wall street guy. And he's a guy who's famous for spending a lot of money on pitchers and, you know, getting expensive infield, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's a really healthy context. He has laundered his name and, um, I know a guy who knows him who basically is like buying the Mets wasn't because he cares about baseball. It was because it fixed his business career. Now meet with him again because he's Mets guy. Mark, Mark Cuban didn't have that Stephen A. Cohen business history, but he was not someone who got invited to the cool parties, right? He was never gonna be on Shark Tank. And you know, I believe he loves basketball very much, but it was overt. He's he has expressed it in a million ways. Like he wanted to be a blue chip guest. He wanted to be invited to things. He wanted to be people. Some people whose name they knew, like the, the Mavericks were delivering a non-cash return to him that meant the world to him. And, you know, that worked, totally worked. And once he was on Shark Tank, he, you know, he started not turn, returning everybody's call quite as fast, you know, because he was like getting closer to his goal. So, you know, and the Allen family has had, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell on Paul Allen's yacht, and there's a bunch of Ghislaine Maxwell's family investing in just business crossover with the Allen family. And you know, I, I don't know why they bought the Blazers, but um, we can't swear that it has nothing to do with trying to gussy up a reputation a little bit. It could be.
0: Yeah, it's a, it becomes a laundering thing. And, you know, the, the par- another parallel we can look at is the old casino story, you know, if you've watched that movie or Las Vegas, you know, used yeah. to be owned by individuals and or, you know, organized crime. But the lament that once upon a time, this was about customer service, right? Once upon a time, right. you could walk in, if you were a whale, you'd be pampered, and everybody knew your name, and everybody, you know, whatever. And then it w- it, it's been basically bought out by these huge conglomerates, and as you say, you know, equity, n- what have you. And so what's the strip like now? Or what's, what's the bottom line? It's not customer service, it's extracting the percentage, right and that was always there they always did extract the percentage that's why they did it but there was a, a coinciding idea of connection with the customer that it's now that it's very corporate you basically walk down the strip and you see the same casino with a different exterior you know every every 10 feet there's another one and and they're all about how we can turn how we can turn profit well okay the NBA is not dissimilar from that. And by the way, uh, I, I find that, and it may be because I'm more embedded now than I was 20 years ago, but I find far fewer differences between most franchises now, most NBA presentations now, anything about the NBA now than, than there was 20 years ago. You used to know there was a big difference between the Blazers and Pistons. W- mm-hmm. What is it now? I- I- I'm not mm-hmm. sure I could name it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there's a, (laughs) I love this story that this like GM told me where teams were run by a small group of men who just rotated, right? Um, And when when a new owner would come in, you would go on what they would call the walk. So the GM gives the owner a tour of the stadium and has like an hour to convince the owner that everything the owner knows about the business outside of the MBA doesn't apply here. This is a magical land. It's like joining the Senate or Hogwarts or something where, you know, like if you're really good as a billionaire and write all the big checks then after a few years, we'll let you be in the draft room. And then maybe you can be on a trade call and like, and on and on. But like all the rules of management, all the books you've read, they don't apply to here because you're from you like a grocery store magnet or um, the Spurs owner was like a from the Caterpillar, they had Caterpillar dealerships. You, you know, one business, this is a different business. But then you know, by the time you get to the current owners, you know, like, Josh Harrison and Dave Blitzer have invested in and run successfully hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies. And they know that the management principles that apply and want apply in all. And you can't take them on that walk and fool them anymore. Right. So now it's like, you know, I've been, you know, to, to almost all of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conferences. This is the p- place where we all learn about dynamic seat pricing or, you know, how you sell your in-arena signage, or like on and on, they have these kind of best practices, which are Pretty sophisticated, and in many cases driven by machine learning. And to your point, like ubiquitous, right? You just, you know, you 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 might pick a deal with one gambling company or another, but you're going to have a deal with a gambling company, you know, and you're and on and on, right? Um, this is this is how it goes. You're exactly right.
0: So, as we uh, before we end here, uh, got to talk about the trailblazers. That's kind of why we're here. Although I've loved this broad view, <laughs> we don't get this very much. So. This is deep off season stuff Dave. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's it's really good. Uh, it's, it's rare anyway. Uh, there are a thousand questions I want to ask. Let's start with this one. Um, what What's the perception of the trailblazers? around the league, or nationally, because or, we get so myopic. I mean, we're in it every day, and everybody who reads Blazer's Edge pretty much is in it every day. And we all have mm-hmm. our tropes, and we all have our stories, and our biases, and our ways of describing things that we presume are true. Zoom us out a little bit. What, what do people think of the Trailblazers, if anything?
1: Well, on the big picture, I can tell you, as someone who's in a lot of meetings at the SPN, that like, the national viewing data... Like Basically, the networks are desperate for another West Coast team that the nation loves. They're desperate for it. So they, a major crisis for national broadcasters trying to monetize the NBA is that they don't have 10 Lakers, right? Um, they're, you know, they, they, every year they keep trying with Oklahoma City or Houston or Phoenix and you know, at times Portland and trying to get the nation to catch on. So you get like a little bump in ratings from, you know, it's a little different from just regular running the middle of the team. And it's tough. These games started 10-30 on the East Coast and the Blazers are like almost every team, like the Clippers um, just haven't stood out. Um, They haven't become like one of America's favorite teams. And that's too bad, right? It was an opportunity, it's super, you know, those peak years of making the Western Conference Finals and Dame and CJ and all that, like super entertaining, but most people would only see them in the playoffs. So now coming into this season, you know, we have this thing where it's very flat, right? There, are you know, the, the favorites aren't the favorites by much. And there's 11, 12 more teams on their heels. And so it seems like I don't know who's going to win this year, but it will be from that pack. And boy, doesn't it seem like the seem the Blazers are just outside that pack. <laughs> like it just, so it's a, you know, it's this, it's this year of, you know i'm a running fan but like you know this is like where the running coming into the last mile of the boston marathon there's going to be 10 people running together and then the blazers will be just behind. it's like oh, it's, just, oh, it's just a bad place to be um so it's probably time to build for the future i would guess um but uh yes yeah, so i think there's this like curiosity obviously it's kind of exciting you know dame's back a lot of young players who knows you know shayden sharp was like the mystery player of the draft etc um But, you know, Gary Payton, great signing, right? Fantastic. Um, New front office, new attitude. Maybe they'll play Chauncey's style now at last. At the same time, like, I don't think I need to put money on it.
0: It, It's curious as a Blazers fan because every year there's something, right? Even under Olshay, who was not keen on, you know, moving players a lot, uh, basically stuck with his core to the point it was boring. But there was always something. It's like, this looks like a smart move. This looks like a smart move. Oh, that's a good stride mm-hmm. in your marathon analogy. Hey, his stride looks good, but mm-hmm, you're not catching mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like I, you know, I, I, there was reason to believe
1: that, see, that Olshay might find gold, right? He did sometimes, but there were a lot of years of like watching Myers Leonard and mean, like, is this really a needle moving NBA player? Right? And it's, possible to believe if you choose to but also there are a lot of good players you know there are a lot of Myers Leonard level players like there just are and um, yeah so I don't know um, I you know (laughs) just for me as a you know watching dumbly as a fan love watching Josh Hart right how fun is it to watch Josh Hart (laughs) like I'm like oh my gosh like let's just you know if we're not going to win the championship let's turn him loose let him do his thing right it's just so fun I mean he's not the only fun player to watch on this team but he's definitely one of them and, um, and you know, Gary, Peyton, like, what an incredible signing. I, I really genuinely believe in the advanced stats of just, like, how incredible he is and could be great. Are those guys even going to play? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, are they even going to see the floor? It's just confusing to me. It seems like we're, we're building two teams at once, right? There's a little bit of, there's, like, an icing of, you know, Jeremy Grant and Dame are in their prime and Nurk. And then everything else is really building for four years from now. They're, they're, they're building that team that won four games in a row while they shut it all down in the second half of last season, right? Like, um, I, Which one are we doing? It doesn't seem like you can get the most out of Josh Hart while you're also trying to win now with players in their 30s. Like, it just, What are we doing? I, I don't know.
0: Yeah. yeah, oops, we won. You better have some injuries. Uh, yeah, what are we supposed to do here? <laughs> oh, big mistake. Uh, well, I mean, and you can see it. You can see that bifurcation right down the... Uh, center of the of those wings. I mean, you got Anthony Simons and Shaden Sharp, who are definitely at a certain stage in their career and do certain things. You know, theoretically, anyway, who are much different than uh, Josh Hart and Gary Payton, right? Mm-hmm. And those are not. I mean, you got this. One is going like, "Do you even score, bro?" And the other is going like, "Well, you're not very well rounded. I don't know what what you do, but it, it's not the same basketball I play." And you've got essentially four players in two positions and maybe one could argue in kind of one position mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like there's no way that you can play all of them so yeah it, it's really interesting unless they're in just talent accumulation mode and there's another move to be made but this is an odd way to go about that too
1: yeah i respect it i mean but talent accumulation is it makes sense to me but um boy, that we have Dame for a long time now? Long time? <laughs> you know, like it's a long time with a lot of money. Um, it's going to be harder to accumulate talent. Um, so, I and I, you know, the Celtics made the finals and were very competitive there by basically playing zero players who don't play great D, right? And they literally went without a ball distributor to make that happen, right? Marcus Smart on offense was really pretty bad at moving the ball around, right? But they're just like, no, we're just going to make sure that everybody's an absolute dogged defender. And I'm not saying that's the only way to win in the NBA. I don't think you can play two bad defenders at the same time anymore. Maybe one. So to me, I don't, you know, you know I love hearing Dame talk about wanting to come back with this meaningful time off, much improved the things he was worst at. Like doesn't that mean he's an average or plus defender now? If it does, total game changer, right? But he's been very, very bad. And that means you literally, I mean, David Thorpe is my colleague at True Hoop and a great guy. He's got a lot of love in his heart. And somebody tweeted something about like, you know, how do you feel about a backcourt of Anthony Simons and Dane Willard? And it was an earnest question that was kind of had hype in it, right? And he's like, not good. (laughs) You know, like, this is not, I don't feel good. They're not good defenders. I mean, the worst defensive backcourt in the NBA if they start together. And I love both of those players, but like they need to play with Gary Payton and Josh Hart and those guys. They need to, like, if you're going to play one of those guys, they need to play with absolute wizards of defense who are flying all over the court and chasing people off the three point line and stopping dunks at the rim. And you you can't, I I think that's how it has to go. So this is where it doesn't make sense. Like, I'd be all in on maybe Ant can become that. You know, maybe I don't know anything about Shayton Sharp. Like, well, I don't know. Maybe he'll be that, but he would need seasons of work, I presume, to that level but i don't think we're going to have if if the plan is older dame and you know is somehow going to be better than the dame and cj dame like unlikely that seems unlikely
0: yeah i mean the book the book at least as far as i saw and this is more observational than statistical but when you put four good defenders around dame he could hold and he actually got more active Right. Yeah. But as soon as there was that other gap, that was a gap too many. Like you say, you can't play two bad defenders.
1: Right. So
0: right. and it, it's curious. It's almost like a shell game going on. And it, it, it's almost like it's almost like the Blazers know that they're not going to do it right now, but they're not going to say that but they're quietly building up it's almost like risk you know you're playing you know when you play risk and you're going no no i'm not going to attack you but all of a sudden those little things get added right at your border and it's like hmm. yeah the actions and the words don't match up here the 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 emphasis on younger players going with non-defenders at guard uh kind of overlooking josh hart right uh, it's like okay i get your gary payton move but all these other things seem to say, yeah, you're you're actually building for the future. And by the way, other than Dame, the things that are longest term and most secure about the team are the future things. Like the present things are either pretty speculative contract wise or in terms of injuries and health and actual production on the floor.
1: Yeah, I totally I mean, you know the, the this lottery pick that became Shaden Sharp would have been the key thing to get Dame the winning now players that he seemed to want last summer. Right. And they didn't trade it away. Everyone thought they were going to, right. There was a lot of speculation about what they were going to do, who they were going to bring in. And, and they didn't ultimately this, you know, and and the Jeremy Grant commitment is for one year. Am I not mistaken? Right. This is a one year commitment to basically the kind of player that Dame said he wanted at the kind of age Dame would want the player to be. Right. And you know, this is basically a very, very young team, and Dave, maybe that's great. Maybe it, it, it wouldn't be my last pick to be like a Cinderella story of this season. It could be very exciting. But, um, you know, I, I, one of the things I love is when you see these stories of like the, the Summer League players, the, who's, who's in your practice facility in like May and June who just like show up and are dogged together and earn trust and love each other. And the Blazers have players like that. But they're, you know, Brandon Williams and stuff, right? Like, are they even gonna be on the team? <laughs> like, are they gonna be on the roster? Like, I just, sort of, it feels like if you can get so that the core and heart of this team and the players who are most dogged and committed are also getting a chance to blossom, you have a chance to really be that team that elevates itself during the season. But I, I you know, for a little while, the end of last, it's like, oh, look, Drew Eubanks is good. Like, I don't know if he's gonna play. I do going be on the team. Um, so there, I, I just feel a little bit like this feels like, no matter what happens, we're going to have pretty good year. And then there'll be hard choices to make that we just didn't make this last summer.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, I th- that's a brilliant point, that the heart of the team, like if you think of guys like that just make your heart leap watching them play. I mean, Eubanks is one of them. Trendon Watford is another one. Dame is. Yeah. Okay, so you've yeah. got Dame. But then it's all, the guys with that Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey spirit are all at the bottom of the rotation. Yeah right now gary payton may change that but uh, you got guys and i don't want to i don't want to impugn the uh, approach of anybody in that mid-range or the upper range i think they're they're great but you know to me use of nurkic doesn't inspire quite that same thing right uh and and same with anthony simons so uh, another division it's like it may be a season of of dichotomy and how they resolve that will be a major story and you're right none None greater than what's going to happen with Jeremy Grant, who was the clear signing of the offseason, the big shining hope, without which we're not even having this discussion. But are they going to ink him to a long-term extension and invest in this team going forward? We still don't know that, and that's, uh, that's kind of interesting. Now let's get to uh, the, the last question for you. So last summer, and let me preface this, uh, I can't find it online at this point, but this week, uh, Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports went on Sirius XM NBA radio. And among other things, he answered about Kevin Durant uh, and various other matters. He talked about Damian Lillard with the Trailblazers. And he said, for one of the first times that I have heard it publicly recently, that there was a two to three week span last summer when Damian Lillard's relationship with the Blazers was, in fact, kind of on the rocks. And the way he put it, I think, was Lillard was exploring options, and it was not at all settled what that exploration would yield. Now, you also talked about this last summer. Uh, took a fair amount of heat for it, but First of all, I want to invite you to say whatever you want to say about that. But also, do you feel like that has morphed into uh, a different situation now? Do you feel that Dame really is wed to this team? Or how much uncertainty do you still perceive there?
1: I love that you asked me this question. Um, So number one, I guess what we reported on True Hoop last summer, really we had two stories. And the first one, which got a lot of people excited, was reporting that, Lillard made comments to friends that he was going to meet with the Blazers in a few days and the friends, the sources, um, interpreted his comments to be that he intended to ask for a trade. I don't know anyone who was in that room who doesn't think that's what happened. And since I reported that, I've talked to many more people who were in that room, including Damian Lillard and his agent. (laughs) so you know that seems to be unimpeachable to me um there's some question about you know when you're hanging out with your friends at dinner maybe you talk a little more aggressively than you do when you're in the actual meeting right um fine you know fine like you know the the reporting was that the friends interpreted that way right so that's a good sign and it should be no surprise to anyone right this was all shortly after he had posted, you know, how long, the how long quote, right? And, and other couple of comments, right? He, he was mixing it up on social media a bunch of different ways. People saying like, you know, basically, um, I don't think like James Harden sort of got a wandering eye when he was in Houston and started showing some signals that he wanted to leave. And I think that worked reasonably well where he still could have stayed or gone. I think maybe I say this with a lot of love as a Portland fan who grew up in Portland, but it's I think Portland fans are a little less tolerant of the I'm 20% out position. <laughs> I think it's a city that wants you to just repeat every day that this is the greatest city in the NBA and we love it so much. And I could never imagine being anywhere else. It's just like the cost of doing business in Portland. You just have to repeat that mantra. And Dame stopped saying the right things for a little bit. And you could see him getting beat up on Twitter for it. And um, I don't think he liked that. I think he's used to being absolutely beloved. And so... You know, I, but for that reason or another, um, you know, he, he continued to play a little bit of a double game, right? There's always been a little bit of a wandering eye or most of you the know, championship first. And I'm um, a one city guy. And I'll say he's always had kind of both messages. And I think in Portland, it's, there's been a preference to just see the one message. <laughs> um, fine. The other thing that happened was part of a very long political fight in the NBA, which is for agency, for who determines where I work, if I'm a star player, right? And it's, the, the latest chapter of it is that, and this has been explained to me by GMs, agents, um, people directly involved in a situation, that it's like, the de facto state of play right now in this chess is, if you're willing to stay home, and you're a superstar, then you, then no one can tell you where to play. You can pick everything, right? But you have to be willing to forgo your paycheck, right? And we've seen it all over the league now, right? It's happening in lots of places. Um, A a good number of the NBA superstars didn't play last year. Um, And James Harden and um, Anthony Davis, there's many examples of people who've used this to great effect, right? Um, So, you know, I was very curious for a player who was under contract as long as Dame was, what leverage he had to change anything, right? Couldn't they just tell him to play? And you know, lots of phone calls that very well explained thing to me was basically like well if you're playing hardball you can play hardball one example of how this comes up is like let's say a team offered to the blazers like the number one overall pick in the draft for dame to go to be a piston right what they do is they are exploring that and they would call his agent and say "Would he show up <laughs> right and you can say whatever you want but um but This is how a player in Dame's position gets to have some control and make sure he doesn't end up on a team he doesn't want to end up on, including possibly the Trailblazers, right? And then after that, this sort of shadow game of leverage of like, Jody Allen needs to sell the team and needs it to look like a beloved popular team with halfway decent local ratings and all that jazz and sellout and everything. All that has to happen. She needs Dame's endorsement, right? At the same time, he's eligible for a contract extension at an age when he's due to be not worth that much money. Right, these are this is this is the John Wall extension, right? Um, at a position at the John, John Wall's position. Um, so there's this shadow boxing going on, and you know he needed to, or whoever's managing his public image needs to make it clear that he's willing to stay home or to leave, to give the Blazers a reason to sweat, right? And um, I wonder if maybe I was part of that manipulation, <laughs> um, but. Uh, in any case, it doesn't matter. He's there now. Um, he got his money, and uh, if the Blazers actually are building a young team, I presume he won't be there forever. I presume that it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 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 it's in a mix. Maybe it's like the Warriors, where you kind of go old and young at the same time. Um, but yeah, it feels like there was some some chess being played that wasn't appreciated in real time by everyone, including me. But now it's a little clearer.
0: It's, it's interesting because it feels like if you're a superstar, you're on a series of one-year contracts, even if you have a six-year contract. And um, Yeah. So last question then, uh, how, when you hear the concept of loyalty, because that's a word that's thrown around a lot here, how does that strike you? A player has loyalty or a team has loyalty uh, to a player. Does that have any weight, any cachet? Does that spend at all?
1: It would if we did away with the draft. Honestly, if, if if this was Dame's chosen team and he liked the culture and he loved this coach or whatever, then I would believe it was a real thing. But that's not how this goes, right? Like they shut you around, you go wherever you want, and then you're supposed to just take the microphone and say like, oh my gosh, I just always loved, where am I? You know, like which hat did they just give me at the draft? What? You know, like... You know, like, I love this four seasons so much more than the other one that looks exactly the same in the other city I was in. Like, you know, the league is not built that way. The league is built on, shut up, kid, just go play, <laughs> right? Like, that's that's the message to every player. And um, you're not going to see your kids. You're not going to see your wife. Like, you're just going to be, gone. just hoop for us, make us money, right? And that's how every day goes. And um, now we're supposed to also just put this, like, like we're all in some, like, army unit together or something even though it's just not it doesn't wash for me it's like it's just it's just a game um, I would love it if what we really had and occasionally there you know, I, I wrote a story once about um, the bulls um, and they're like Joakim Noah heyday like seem to really love each other and I went into the locker room and basically I was like I went to player after player and I was like I want to write a story about this but I don't want to look stupid I don't want it to be the 50th time they tell us like that James Harden, Dwight Howard thing I said earlier, that they like lie to us and say, this is really about players loving each other. And I um, can't remember who, Taj Gibson opens his phone. He's like, look, does this convince you? And he shows me like his last, he scrolls through like his last like 50 texts. It's all teammates. That's the only people he's talking to. <laughs> you know? And he's like, we really freaking love each other. You know? and, and Joe Noah is like, don't even worry about it. You're just like hundred you know? percent. So it, it can happen despite the environment. But I don't think it's smart to demand the performative show of loyalty, right? Like, it's just not how the world works. It's just, it's a silly little thing for fans.
0: And when there's no incentive to give any other answer, you're going to get the answer that you demand.
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Henry. So tell us, uh, first of all, folks, if you don't subscribe to True Hoop, you should. Uh, As we chronicled at the beginning, Henry was the first to do this, that we're doing here or among the first. Uh, And now True Hoop is among the first to do the circles around the NBA and the money laundering and all the things that we touched on. I mean, nobody else is doing this. I assume in two decades, this will be mm, standard like. Covering basketball is standard now, but Henry has always been at the forefront. He's our Moses uh, out there with his staff parting the Red Sea, <laughs> taking us to somewhere we know not where. So uh, so proud
1: to be identified with
0: Moses. There we <laughs> Thank go. You, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> you need to grow a beard. Uh, in any case, uh, tell us uh, how what we can do at True Hoop, what we can see what you have, and how to subscribe.
1: So my partner is David Thorpe, and he really is a basketball genius who, like, personally advises very elite NBA players on how to improve in their game. And he shares all kinds of crazy insight all the time. Um, then we have a podcast we started in the the depths of everyone in lockdown called bring it in, um, which is, you know, David's big brain and a lot of fun. And then, um, we have a bunch of free articles. If you go to troop.com, um, you can just get emails with free stuff. And then if you're really all in and you want to get the full brainiac inside dope, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff that you can get anywhere else, um, and you know all the stuff that upsets Blazers fans about Damian Lillard. Um, then you can subs- you can pay to subscribe to Troop dot com, and we'd love to have you.
0: Yep, you should probably do that because Henry is amazing, and David as well. So. Uh, and you can never have too many Davids around by the way Henry. all the Davids uh, no, all yeah. the Davids, Plenty of Davids. Just, just collect yeah. them yes uh, we <laughs> I, at one point at SB Nation half the basketball bloggers were Daves I mean it was just Whoa. I don't even know like how <laughs> how that happened anyway thank you so much Henry Abbott from truehoop.com and uh, thank you to our listeners we will see you again next week when Dia will be back and we will be having more fun with a
1: hater season opening down the lane moves towards the hoop but then Dia comes out of nowhere to swap the shot attempt away, saying, get that weak stuff out of here! Jade scoops up the loose ball. Now it's a fast
0: break the other way with Dia. She's flying down the court. sends her an alley She cancels it! Boom! Shaka The crowd is on its feet saluting Dia. I tell you, if she isn't the rookie of the year, they really ought to just stop giving the award. What a talent!